0: Welcome to episode 208 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So we have a, a Patreon or Patreon person to, to thank at the start of this episode this week, Shane. So uh, yeah, we, we had another donation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. We really appreciate the Patreon support. Um, And as always, thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, We definitely appreciate it and uh, just helps us do the cost recovery thing with this podcast and hopefully, uh, you know, continue to evolve it a little bit over time. And uh, so, yeah, thanks again to uh, Brett as our newest Patreon supporter. Yeah,
0: sounds good. So how was, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks to Brett. Appreciate that. And he sent a nice email. I think we'll read that in a few minutes. But uh, before we do that, how was uh, your week, Shane?
1: It was awesome. Uh, finally got back <laughs> to some observing. Um, I was out uh, five different times, I think, so oh wow. Yeah, it was really good. Um, yeah, yeah, how, uh, how was yours? Were you able to get out at all?
0: Well, no. I mean the fields are just a disaster, so um, you know to get out and do any dark sky observing uh, was, was just off just right off. wasn't, wasn't going to happen. It's uh, pretty muddy out there. so I'm, I'm assuming you were just in your backyard.
1: Yeah. 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 Lots of backyard observing. I, um, uh, started on Monday. So that would be, I think March 21st. Um, I went out in the evening. Um, it was like one of our first clear nights where it wasn't cold. It wasn't windy. Like all of those conditions were, were lining up. So I put out the tax 76, um, with uh, the binocular viewer on and I, I put it out an hour or two ahead of time just to, you know, let it cool. Um, certainly the telescope doesn't need that long, but, but I'm not sure how long it takes the binocular viewer to acclimate. So, uh, you know, decided to err on the side of caution and make sure there was more than enough time to get cool. Um, so I went out around 8 PM. So this is getting into, I think like astronomical twilight now, um, still not dark, but you know, it's, like a lot of stars are starting to pop out. Um, what was really weird is I got disoriented very quickly when I looked in the sky. Um, because I, my, my target was going to be serious. I was going to, um, uh, try to split serious, uh, this season. You know, I haven't given that a try yet. Yeah. And, uh, what was disorienting was serious. When I looked up in the sky, just naked eye, it was perfectly steady. Like there was no flickering to it at all. And I thought, well, that's, that's not serious. Um, what, like, what am I looking at? Like, what would be that bright in the Southern sky? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of a house like taking away some of my view. So I couldn't see all of Orion. So I, I shifted my position a little bit to see Orion and, and, you know, quickly concluded that yes, that indeed was serious. And that seeing was just really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so excitedly, I went to the Bino viewer to observe and I couldn't reach focus <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> this stupid Bino viewer. Um, and I knew why I put in some adapters that increased the, uh, the light path by about, I don't know, eight or nine millimeters, which was just enough to, uh, to foil that attempt. So not, uh, not a problem. The Bino viewers just went back into the case and I did some mono viewing, um, Long story short, um, I've never seen Sirius look that good through the telescope before wow. uh, due to seeing. However, I still didn't see Sirius B with my little tack. Yeah. Um, and, and that night, uh, I used my lowest focal length eyepiece, which is the uh, 1.6 millimeter Vixen HR. Um, this is an eyepiece that I bought secondhand maybe a year ago. Um, more so just because Vixen stopped producing these eyepieces and I thought, well, I may want the, one of these at some point and I got it, uh, at a really good price. And and now these Vixen HRs, because they're no longer produced, they're selling for like 500 Canadian dollars in some wow. cases. Um, so anyway, I never thought I'd really use this eyepiece, but, uh, you know, last or on Monday night, the seeing was so good that, uh, it, it held in my tax 76. So that was, um, producing about 375 times power, uh, which is incredible. Um, so in, in my attempts to split Sirius, uh, I, I used a a range of different eyepieces, but the power was from about 225 to 375. And, uh, what was interesting is we got an email from, um, I think, I think it's Dave, wasn't it? Uh, that, he 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 emailed us to say or to tell us that he split Sirius with his 81 millimeter William Optic mm-hmm. uh, refractor, and that when he went too high on the magnification front, he lost it. But when he reduced his magnification to I think it was about 150 or like 142 mm-hmm. or something like that, he said it was there, no problem. So it got me you know wondering afterwards. Uh, maybe if I was just using too much power. Um but anyway that uh that you know that was sort of after the fact um that night I, I continued to observe um I looked at M42 uh 45 uh, CR69 belt of orion hyades uh splitting rigel was no problem huge gap in between um you know the the companion was was very visible nice uh, lambda uh Uranus was uh easily split um, there's a bunch of doubles in M45 and some in the Hyades that I split. Yep. And, um, uh, you know, the, the 40 mil. So I, I, then I, I like a lot of these observations, uh, towards the end of the night, I was just using that 40 millimeter Pentax Kellner that I have. And, mm-hmm. uh, that eyepiece is really phenomenal. Just the, like the color, um, that it, like the star color just seems so noticeable, uh, with that eyepiece, like, just any sort of orange or reddish hue to the star just really pops with that one. And, and I don't know why, but, um, it just seems like a, a really good eyepiece for that stuff. Nice. So anyway, that was Monday. Yeah. It was a fun night. It was good to be back under the, the stars collecting some photons, uh, Tuesday, um, during the daytime, I was working from home. So I put out my little hydrogen alpha one to 35 millimeter telescope and, um, my plan was just sort of, you know, on coffee breaks and lunch, you know, just to pop out and have a quick view. So this would have been, I think earlier in the morning, maybe around 10, 10 AM. There was an incredible ejection on the Northwest limb of the sun. And um, like it was completely detached from, from the limb. Um, And it, it, it sort of looked like a, just a big plume of gas leaving the sun and I've never seen anything like that before. That was that large uh, and that far away from the sun. Uh, it was incredible. Um, what was really interesting, though, is so that was at about ten in the morning. When I went back out at lunchtime to see how it had evolved, completely gone. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it it really evolved quickly and. You know, this was one of those moments where I really regretted not, uh, calling in sick that day or taking a vacation day because, um, it would have been really, really cool to, uh, observe that evolution. Um, but the sun is super active. Like there is a whole bunch of, uh, eruption prominences all around the limb, um, and a few curtain, uh, prominences, which are just sort of like, I don't know, almost like wide rectangles. Um, super cool. Um, and, and the surface detail was interesting as well, but, um, that was it for solar that day, but that night, uh, it was clear again. So, um, I put out the tax 76, uh, with the same mission, which was to try to split Sirius B. Um, and this time I, I took the adapters out that, uh, prevented the binocular viewer from working the previous night. Um, mm-hmm. so the binocular viewer was able to work and I was really wanting to use it because I've heard some reports of people trying to split Sirius B or Sirius, um, that mono viewing they've, they struggle. And, and the first time they ever tried with a Bino viewer, it was like no big deal. Um, so anyway, Bino viewer was out, but seeing on Tuesday night was noticeably worse than the previous evening. Um, Sirius was flickering like it always does. Um, so I spent probably about 20 to 30 minutes trying to split Sirius B, um, and this time using lower magnifications like David suggested, but I was unsuccessful that night. In fact, um, Tuesday night, even splitting Rigel was a little challenging, like, um, and, and it was all seeing related, you know, Rigel would, uh, the Rigel companion would sort of fade during those moments of poor seeing and then come back during those real brief moments of good seeing, um, so, you know, that was, uh, disappointing, but again, it, uh, you know, I, I moved on to some other objects, um, because now I had the Bino viewer. So I wanted to, you know, compare the view of all of the objects I had looked at the night before mono and just see how I, you know, enjoyed it with the Bino viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, M42, uh, appeared brighter to me actually with, the, with the Bino viewer, which is kind of odd because, you know, Bino viewers typically are a little dimmer. Um, but I, 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 think that it might've been slightly an illusion. Um, I certainly noticed the contrast increase, like just the subtle wispiness and some of the darkening, uh, areas of that nebula were far more apparent with two eyes than the previous night. Hmm. Um, it almost had like a wispy pillow appearance. If I, you know, if that, you know, conjures anything in your mind, um, it was super cool. Um M45 was amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, the only downfall that night was I had it on my little uh Burlaback caster two mount, which is a fantastic mount, but it doesn't it doesn't deal well with like that type of weight imbalance, and um it just wasn't a super pleasurable experience because of that. Um so anyway, that was Tuesday night. Uh, do you mind if I carry on, Chris? I'm Go sort for of it, and Oh and yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. Um, so fast forward then to Friday. Um, I had, a, I did have a vacation day on Friday, so I had the whole day to uh, to do whatever I wanted, and uh, it cleared up during the day. So I uh, I set up the solar telescope, um, but this time a little bit different. I you know I still had the thirty five millimeter lunt out there. Um, but that caster mount that I have, as you know, is a T-mount. So you can mount two telescopes on it. So I had the 35 millimeter Lunt H-alpha on one side, and then I had the 50 millimeter Borg FL on the other side with the Lunt solar wedge that I have. So, you know, producing that white light image. Um, I have, uh, I have that, all of that on a carbon fiber tripod and it is just amazing how light and easy this thing is to move around. And, and it performed quite well. Um, in fact, that caster mount is probably becoming my new favorite alt as mount, uh, like manual alt as mount. It is just such a, a a good functioning mount that gets out of the way of observing, uh, provided you have you know uh, well-balanced uh, tubes on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, to the observing, uh, so I was using, um, 18 millimeter eyepieces in each of the telescopes. Uh, the Lunt had the, uh, TMB super mono, the Borg had a, a Pentex SMC ortho, um, through the Lunt, there is again, multiple eruptive promin- prominences. Uh, there's multiple, uh, I, I think it's called Plage, P-L-A-G, uh, regions, and, um, what these are is just like, uh, brightening of the, of the surface of the sun, but it's brighter than a lot of the other areas. And it really stands out. Um, and there's a really, uh, a fairly large sunspot region in the Northwest quadrant. Um, there is a, I think there was about three sunspots sorted together. One in the middle was, uh, was, was the largest and, and was significantly, uh, larger than the rest and really allowed for some, uh, decent detail to be observed. It had really nice penumbra, uh, around it. Um, so the penumbra, um, yeah, when you're observing sunspots, the real dark area is the umbra. And then around the dark area, if you put optics on it, you will often see like a, a lighter gray area surrounding it. And that's the penumbra. Um, so both, both were well-defined in all of the sunspots, but in particular, the large one in the middle, uh, there was, um, um, there was a lot of granulation, uh, with the white light filter as well. So granulation is just, um, like sort of, uh, I don't know, almost looks like cellular in a way on the, on the sun. And it's like little bright patches or bright dots almost in a way. Um, so that was kind of a, a neat thing too. Um, anyway, having both telescopes set up like that was a lot of fun and I've just left them upstairs like that now too. So it's really easy just to, to walk them out the door. Nice. Yeah. And then, uh, the last one to report here is, uh, yesterday, uh, Saturday. Um, so again, a solar session during the day. Um, there were not as many prominences on Saturday. Um, there was, uh, there was two in particular that really stood out though. Um, they were eruption prominences. Um, and, and there there's another detached ejection cloud, if you want to call it that. Um, it was nowhere near as spectacular as the one earlier in the week, but it was kind mm-hmm. of neat to see that there. Um, the surface detail was really, really good on Saturday. Um, maybe it was due to the seeing. I'm, I'm not too sure, but tons of surface detail through the H alpha. Um, there was two prominent filaments, which is basically kind of a black line is how it appears. Um, and three, uh, bright plage areas. Um, but I really wanted to spend some time observing the sunspots through, uh, the white light filter, uh, that I had on the Borg FL. So I started with that 18 millimeter ortho Uh, I moved to a 10 millimeter super mono and then settled on a seven millimeter ortho, uh, which seemed to be about the limit, but with, with that extra power, um, the middle sunspot that's, you know, it's still the largest one there almost had like a heart shape to it, but Mm. picture a heart that was probably drawn by like a (laughs) five-year-old, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, you know, perfectly symmetrical in any way. But it uh, it definitely had some character to it. It was uh, it was pretty cool. Again, there was lots of visible granulation, but it was a little windy yesterday, and um, as a result, I didn't actually observe for too too long. But you know enough to to take in some detail. Um. Anyway, uh, that's it. That's my observing for the week. That's it, was, it. That's all you did. Yeah, I know, I know. That's all <laughs> I could fit in. But uh, <laughs> that's great.
0: Well, congratulations.
1: Yeah, so much backyard
0: was, astronomy, in. And-
1: yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, certainly, having the, like the ability to do the solar observing really opens up a lot of opportunity. Um, you, you know, because sometimes it's cloudy at night, or you're busy at night, or or you know, there's always a million reasons you know that uh, seem to get in the way. But um, anyway, it was a great week. It feels so good to be you know observing again, and I'm hoping that our conditions uh, just continue to improve.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly hope they do. It looks like uh things are, you know, off to uh off to a much better start than they were at this time last month. That's for certain.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'm gonna go to my site today just to uh just to check it out. But uh but yeah, because I mostly do dark sky observing. There was that night that was really good that, that you started with. Mm-hmm. I looked up and I thought, this is great, but I can't go anywhere because that was like the last night we had the you know, the glacier that forms at the end of your driveway. And oh, yeah. it, it was just like so brutal getting in and out of our driveway just for that one day that I was like, I don't want to put a telescope in the car and drive over this. I thought about, I thought about backing the car out and then taking a scope out and then trying to find a spot in the fields. But I was like, this, this just has disaster written all over it. So uh, anyway, I decided, I decided just to, just to stay put that night and have been trying to get some other stuff done. Uh, anyway, yeah. So that's good. Hey, we got breaths email. Maybe I'll uh, give that a read.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. Give my voice box a, a rest here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that, that's really good. No, I'm really glad you're able to, uh, to get out and, uh, you know, both that in the day and, and at night, um, I'm kind of jealous, but at the same time as, you know, I prefer to, to head to the darker skies cause my yard's much brighter than yours. And, uh, yeah, it's just still that we had so much snow this year that this melt is just just making a mess out, uh, out there. So, uh, yeah, so Brett is, uh, is a new Patreon supporter and he wrote, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. My name is Brett. I'm relatively new to, uh, amateur astronomy and living in Utah near Salt Lake city. He says, uh, I apologize in advance if this email is too long, but rest assured that that's, no problem for us. He said, uh, I've listened to you uh, so much that I suppose in my mind it qualifies you as close astronomy contacts. And yeah, we're glad that, uh, that you feel that way. That, that's our intent. So uh, he said he, he thought that he would write to tell you uh, how he got into astronomy about a year ago and uh, his journey um, thus far. So yeah, that's really awesome. So I really like these sort of emails because they're, they're giving um, a bit of a fresh perspective on somebody who's just entering. I know we've had, and we have an email here from from Ethan, we'll read shortly, but it's really interesting to see how people are entering uh the hobby of astronomy now versus like when you and I get into it uh you know several decades ago which which was a little bit different than it is at this time eh
1: yeah yeah exactly it's uh there's just so much available now um you know in, in podcasts and like there's just so much information and gear like it's very accessible
0: yeah. He goes on to say, uh, I've been observing for less than a year around the beginning of May last year is, uh, is when he started. And he said, uh, he really was inspired by cosmos by, uh, mm-hmm. Neil degrasse, uh, Tyson. Um, have you seen the cosmos series?
1: Not all of all of them, um, strangely enough, I probably should, I, you know, make that a priority. I think it's on Netflix, isn't it? Yeah, it's on,
0: I think it's on Netflix or Amazon prime. I have both. It's one or the other. And I remember the first year I bought the first set the first year and of course this is based on the original i think it was the 1970s um or maybe early 80s by Carl Sagan which uh which i'd watched not at the time but i was able to rent from the local video store back in the days of videotape and uh, before you know there was dvds and when i was getting into astronomy and uh you know was was a young person i i had rented all those and watched them um which were good there's a lot of sort of astrophysics sort of mixed in a little bit with the history of astronomy, uh, which, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, anyway, so Breck goes on to say, as someone with very little knowledge of the universe, the series opened my eyes. I was drawn in by the simple, uh, understandable way the series uh, taught about the universe and our place in it. What intrigued me even more uh, were the stories of early astronomers and scientists like Herschel and Newton, uh, who made revolutionary discoveries. I finished watching the series, my only thought was, I need to see some of these things for myself. And yeah, I mean, I think that's just what it comes down to. You want to see those those original articles and the cool part about uh, amateur astronomy is unlike a lot of things, it's difficult to, to get in direct contact. And to view the original articles, um, you know that that these people discovered or or you know continue to to observe and uh, and to look at. So it's really cool to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So he goes on to say uh, that prompted a month long uh, internet dive into telescopes, astronomy, uh, all the terms and definitions, so that he can make an educated purchase and start observing. He said at the beginning of June, he placed an order for an Apertura AD10. Which is a 10-inch Dobsonian telescope. Um, that's pretty awesome. Starter mm. telescope, by the that's way. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 10 inch is is wonderful. Like it's it's almost like the perfect uh Dobsonian, right? Like it it'll definitely give you a little more light grasp than than an eight inch, but like you're probably not noticing a big difference between the 10 and the 12 either. You know, it's it's kind of a neat zone.
0: Yeah, and I think that the modern 10 inches are more like the old eight inches. Um, well, in particular, like the eight inch I had for sure um, w- would be comparable to, to these modern 10 inches. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say uh, it was back ordered at the time. So he uh, bought a pair of somebody, seven by 50 binoculars and, a, and a, the night watch book, which is, that's like, you know, pretty standard recommendation. I think that's a great way to get going. Yeah. And he says that from uh, June until August, when his telescope arrived, he uh, basically, just did some binocular observing and uh, started working away uh, through the uh, Astronomical League and some of their observing programs. Joined a local astronomy club and uh, yeah, you found out about uh, this podcast, our podcast via uh, thread on uh, Claudia Nights, which is super awesome because certainly Claudia Nights uh, has inspired us and and we uh, you know continue to uh, to enjoy that uh, that forum. So so what is Claudia Nights, Shane? Maybe we should give a bit of a briefer on that for those that are just sort of hearing that for the first time.
1: Yeah, Cloudy Nights is probably the, well not probably, it is like the source for astronomy forums for North America anyway or Canada and the US, I should say. Um so you can go to Cloudy Nights and there's all sorts of topics to post on. Uh, you know, you can post whatever comments, questions you would like and have discussions with other astronomers. It's a great resource for amateur astronomy. Um, and there's also a classified uh, like ad section there. So if you want to sell gear or buy gear, you can do that there as well. Yeah. yeah, and
0: it's heavily moderated. it's family friendly, and uh, yeah. you don't you don't see too many um you know war of the words kind of things going on there. so it's pretty good like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why I mentioned like kind of Canada and the U S is because, uh, in Europe, there's stargazers lounge and it's yeah. really good as well. So either one of those places, I spend a lot of time actually just, you know, combing through the the forums, uh, either just reading for my pleasure or, you know, sometimes I have a real specific thing that I want to learn about or find more information on. And, and both of those forums are outstanding.
0: Yeah, they're pretty good. I I don't tend to write too much on there because, I think there's there's a lot of people who's who's almost a hobby within a hobby is uh, is sort of participating in there and and a lot of them are you know much more experienced than I am anyway. and uh, yeah, it's kind of fun just to just to sort of read. but I used to spend a lot more time on there, but uh, but now you know it's like a handful of times uh, a month or whatever. if I'm looking for something like in particular, uh I'll go in there and and take a take a look for it uh so uh so we talked a little bit about brett talked a little bit about the uh, astronomical league observing programs and he said that uh, as a beginner he really appreciates uh, having uh, that sort of structure and focused he's always been uh, checklist oriented so this type of observing fits well with uh, his personality and he says that he's working on five basic programs that are part of the observer award and that includes the Messier list a lunar observing program of 100 features solar system program that lets uh that lets you get a taste for the planets, dwarf planets, comets, asteroids, sun, moon, uh, and a program uh, you know, that allows you to draw the stars and uh, you know, show what you can see as far as like the constellations in your hemisphere, um, and that sort of thing. So he said uh as a as a fun addition, anytime you complete one of the programs, you get a getting a little pin. Um said so that's uh, sort of pretty fun, kind of keeps motivated. And he said some of his wow moments uh, in this journey so far has been seeing the great red spot on Jupiter and uh, being able to make out the Cassini division, watching the phases of Venus and uh, seeing some some of the detail on the moon and deep sky objects like M, uh, the globular cluster M13, the cluster M45, and, uh, and then M93 uh, as well, which I believe is an open cluster if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that I've been surprised about is how uh, long it took uh, for me to decide uh, that I needed another telescope. So he quickly discovered that, while well, they loved his 10-inch telescope. Um, can't take it everywhere with them because it's a fair size. And they go on quite a few car trips in his family. So when when we were talking about uh, small portable telescopes, and Shane, I think you mentioned the suitcase observatory, and that's uh, kind of what inspired him Um you know, to to create a, another goal of getting uh, an additional small telescope that he could uh, that he could take with him and easily pack. And he also wanted to have go-to capabilities. So what he ended up with was uh, the Astrotech 70ED uh, and the uh, AZ-GTI, like I have, and everything fit in a really cool orange uh, 20 by 15 inch case. And uh, he used some DIY t- Trek pack dividers and uh and sent us a photo of it i i think that just that's one of the coolest setups i've ever seen in a case it looks really uh it looks like everything really goes together everything's sort of white black and gray
1: steel yeah yeah it's amazing and and i love those uh those trek pack dividers like i think um i think pelican case like whoever like pelican the company that makes pelican cases sells these trek pack dividers um, and I just love the look of them. They're just so clean and, and like, you can customize it to fit whatever gear, you know, you want to put in your case. Uh, they are, they are really cool.
0: Yeah. So he's got the 70 ED, he's got, um, diagonals, barlows filters, looks like his red led, a finder scope, but like one of the, uh, red dot finders and filters and, and the AZ, uh, GTI, um, all fit in the same, uh, all fit in the same case together and uh and yeah that can work pretty well like i know i can like that the az gti it, it's small-ish it's about i don't know like sort of maybe six or seven inches kind of sort of cubed-ish um but it's super portable like i put mine in a case with all my eyepieces and that's no problem um it's pretty incredible for such a for such a little mount. uh so he concludes to say um i've had my first runs with uh, with a little setup uh, working well in the backyard working on the lunar program and he just loves the ease of setup, even if uh, he's not traveling. He, he really likes it, and uh, he thinks he would choose it over his 10 inch for for lunar views. And uh, yeah, that's the, the moon is so uh, such a high contrast object. Uh, you don't necessarily need to have the big uh, light gathering power, and sometimes having uh, you know less light when when it comes to moon is better. Uh, he says, Brett says, PS, I thought you'd like to, uh, like to know that that you can add another listener to your list of restaurant or astronomers. He and his wife own a dessert cafe where they serve uh cake by the slice, brownies, cookies and pastries and other treats.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and what some or probably most listeners don't know is we record this like Sunday mornings, uh, just kind of before lunchtime. So this talk about food often gets me a little hungry and, uh, I probably need to have a, like a mid podcast snack. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Exactly. So I I had asked him sort of in a side email, I think like what his recommendation for a late night observing tree was. He said, um, I think like a, like a poppy seed citrus loaf of some sort, which is pretty funny because I often eat, um, poppy seed lemon loaf anyway, something similar to that. So I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's, that's an awesome email. Um, I really love his, his, his suitcase observatory, I think is awesome. Um, and I like that he's working on multiple lists. Um, uh, I think that that's a really cool thing too, because you know, the Messier list is awesome, but when the moon's in the sky, it, you know, we, we typically don't look at those deep sky objects as much because they get washed out. So it's nice to have some other projects to work on during, you know, the, the two weeks of the month or, or kind of three weeks ish when the moon is starting to creep into your dark sky observing routines. So, um, yeah, very, uh, very good email.
0: Yeah. The only thing I'll say about, uh, about lists is this sometimes, and I, and I do find this like pretty common amongst amateurs is, um, and it's great to sort of have projects that you're working away on, but then as well, like, just as you're like reading books or astronomy magazines or whatever, just remember to kind of jot those objects down somewhere or, you know, kind of go off in some tangents to take a look at, at different objects just as you're kind of going down that astronomy path. Because sometimes I find like I run into people and they've done, you know, like the Messiers, and then they did some sort of NGC program and then they did something else. And then they did a lunar program. That's all cool. Like that's, that's really great that they did that. But then I'll say, Oh, have you ever looked at, I don't know, like Barnard's loop or something. They're like, what's that? I'm like, Well, you see, this is a pretty cool thing you can see in a small telescope. And, and then that takes them down a whole different path. And they might've been doing astronomy for who knows, like a, like years at that point. So, uh, yeah, just as you're like reading magazines or books or whatever, yeah, just jot those things down as well. And, and try to take a look because, uh, yeah, sometimes what's on the list is, uh, is, is great as far as, uh, is a really neat program set of targets to work through, but uh, there's, there's so much stuff you can see in the night sky, like going through those Kemble logs. Like I've been kind of really opened your eyes to that and kind of how somebody, somebody like that observed. And I think you pointed this out as well, Shane, like as he was reading his magazines and you have copies of those, he was underlining stuff and, Oh, I didn't mm-hmm. see this thing, you know, and then mm-hmm. kind of taking note of, of different things that, uh, that he might want to want to go and take a look at. So, so always worth your while to kind of keep that in the back of the mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and as I grew in my, you know, my astronomy routines or how I observe, one of the things that I started to do is, you know, rather than necessarily, you know, go through an entire list is just go through a constellation, you know, like make a, a certain constellation your focus for a night, a week, a month, a season, whatever it might be and just see what you can find in that constellation and Um, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of stuff up there and some constellations are really rich with, um, open clusters and nebula and, you know, galaxies. Um, so yeah, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it for sure. Cool.
0: All right. Uh, do you want to read the email from, uh, Ethan?
1: Yeah, for sure. So we got another update from Ethan. So just uh, a quick background. Uh, Ethan owns one of these unistellar telescopes that are um, not really a visual telescope. They're an imaging telescope, but they produce some cool images. Um, But the real real neat part of these things is the citizen science contributions that go along with them. So uh, that's the setup. So Ethan writes, hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, I have another fun citizen science update. Uh, on February 19th, I along with three other citizen scientists pointed our unistellar telescopes at Qatar-8B. Uh, it's a gas giant that's 1.3 times the size of Jupiter, located 918 light years from Earth uh, and captured its transiting er, and captured it transiting its star, uh, Qatar 8. Uh, so see the attached charts detailing my specific observation, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and, it also had the observations of, uh, all of the other Unistar telescope or Unistellar telescopes that were imaging, uh, Qatar 8b. Uh, so Ethan says this planet was targeted because there were few ground-based timing measurements for recent transits. Therefore the uncertainty was large for transits occurring in 2029 and beyond When the European Space Agency's aerial space telescope could observe the planet. Uh, Our combined measurements of Qatar 8B's transit matches others taken over the last few months in the Exoclock database, uh, which have reduced that future uncertainty. In addition, our measurements are the first ones to be submitted to the AAVSO database for Qatar 8B, which is really cool. Um, And then Ethan says some fun facts about Qatar 8B and its host star. Uh, it has a surface gravity of 0.59 G with a temperature of 1,183 degrees Celsius. Uh, its orbital period, this is nuts, uh, is only 3.72 days. Um, so one year is 3.72 earth days. Um, it's host star Qatar eight is 1.03 solar masses. Uh, and has a radius of 1.31, that of our sun. Uh, the habitable zone is between 1.01 and 1.77 AUs. Uh, Citizen science for the win, and then uh, Ethan signs off. So pretty cool. I love this interstellar stuff.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really neat. Um, you know, again, I, I kind of, even though the, the order of these emails today is not in the order they came in, I kind of sort of bracketed these two, cause here's, um, you know, another individual who's kind of entered astronomy from a slightly different angle and, uh, just kind of like their, their experiences are kind of going through and sort of keeping us up to date, which we really appreciate. Um, because I, I think it is kind of neat how, how, you know, people are able to take these different approaches now and, uh, in, into their uh, entrance in, into the hobby. And like when you and I got going in into this, uh, I I always want to call it like the sport of amateur astronomy because to me it is a bit like a sport, um, you know, where, you know, if you wanted to make those sort of uh, scientific contributions, you you would have had to ramp up in so many ways. It would have probably taken you, you know, quite some years, I think, I think to get to that point, to be making uh, any sort of observations remotely, like the one that, uh, that Ethan's made here, uh, you know, really just, just a handful of months into this say.
1: Yeah, you know, it definitely would would take some, some, you know, some time to learn how to do all of this stuff um, and to get your like your setup proper to do this type of research. Uh, whereas the Unistellar telescope, like out of the box, um, is is ready to go. Um, but but more importantly, um, is the community that Unistellar has built around these telescopes to encourage this type of collaboration and research or data gathering for research. Um, it's phenomenal, right? Because if you like Chris, if, if you want to do this research, but you're not going to do it with a unistellar telescope, you can, you know, you can go buy, you know, cameras and mounts and all this stuff and, and do the imaging. Um, but I'm not so sure, you know, how you get connected with all of this other citizen science stuff going on. I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, Facebook groups and other things out there, but, right. uh, this unistellar, uh, community is just super cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's really neat because it sort of breaks down like the uh, exclusivity of uh, of doing all that and, and making those sort of contributions. So yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool and uh, kind of look forward to to where this evolves. And uh, you know, I look I look forward to the time when uh, when maybe newer, better, and cheaper systems are coming out, and the prices of maybe these or, or other ones on the used market comes way down and. You know, in a, in a number of years, maybe like in four or five years, I could see myself purchasing one of these. Um, you know, just to have out at my dark sky site on on nights, maybe when, you know, uh, I'm out observing, I could, you know, maybe have it in such a way that I could just simply, you know, grab it, take it out, plunk it down, get it running, and just kind of go and do my own observing. Well, it just you know mm-hmm. chugs away and and does whatever. And then uh, you know just sort of grab it and throw it back in the observatory at the end of the night kind of thing. I I think that would be uh, super cool um, just to be able to to provide that data because kind of that that you know sort of ramping up getting up and started like you know I kind of am pretty familiar with some of that stuff and then these sort of things seem to be you know, relatively autonomous. You don't have to babysit them uh, too much. So you know just be uh, just be kind of cool. Maybe you can even hook it into the internet and somebody else could kind of do that kind of work because I'm more interested in like the looking through the telescope, but with uh, with lots of time and access to dark skies then uh, you know would be uh, would be another opportunity to make some some sort of scientific contributions i think it's pretty cool yeah for sure all right uh, got a couple emails here about uh the the optics cleaning i got these and always makes me happy that at the start of the podcast every week or every, every time we do one, we say that we're amateurs and certainly I uh, mean, we proved ourselves out on this one and, and people had uh, <laughs> you know, it, And but it's fine. You know, people had other advice. I, I think yeah. uh, you know, in the next one, Bill gives a bit of a correction on some of our advice on reflectors, which is good. Um, the first one is uh, is from Chris and he wrote to say uh, he enjoyed the past two shows um, he didn't think that he would enjoy the show on cleaning, uh, the optics, but he said we did a pretty good job of, uh, uh, presenting it. Um, so we appreciate that. Yeah. I wasn't sure at first either. And when Shane tossed it out to me, I was like, mm, I don't know if I can create notes for this. And then I did. And I was like, this isn't too bad actually. And that that's happened. I've been surprised quite a few times. So always, always happy to let Shane take, take the lead and, uh, and toss out, uh, ideas that maybe I never would have thought of. So, you know, that's sort of the advantage of having um, a couple different people with different perspectives on this, uh, you know, putting ideas in the show. Anyway, uh, Chris goes on to say uh, he wanted to share uh, his recommendations on what's worked well for him. Of course, um, I clean lenses only in dire situations and an obsess over dust and little eyelash smears. Um, he says this stuff works really well. I'm just trying to, it's called Eclipse Optics Cleaning Fluid. You can get it on Amazon. It's not too expensive. And then the other one was this. I had seen. I hadn't seen the first one before, but the other one I had seen, which is just these pec pads, pec pad, and um, they're cleaning pads for uh, for cleaning uh, your lenses and such. I, I've seen those before. I even have some around here. And he said uh, both these are recommended him by a fellow. Uh, astronomer who is also a photographer by trade. So that's a pretty good endorsement. Um, And then he said, observing conditions here have been dismal. He said, I hope it's getting better there. Thanks, Chris. So pretty good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, Should I take the next one? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, So first of all, thanks to Bill. He corrected a mistake that I made on that cleaning podcast. So my apologies, but uh, let me, let me read this email from Bill to, uh, to set the record straight. Um, so Bill says, and and Bill's been on the podcast before, um, yeah. and, and
0: pe- uh, people should know we, we go way back with Bill, and I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I've gone out and been his uh, like the place where he does his big public outreach, and and uh, you know hung out at a few uh, conventions with him, that sort of thing. So uh, pe- people should know that as as they as they as they listen to this, uh, yeah, we're <laughs> you know we're, we're not just uh, sort of uh, email correspondents that have never met. Uh, yeah, we go back a little ways, so it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So Bill says, uh, I I don't usually feel the need to respond immediately or at all to your podcast advice, seeing as it's often just a matter of style or taste. Uh, Today, though, when I heard the advice of soaking a mirror in water overnight, a line from the song Bohemian Rhapsody instantly shot through my brain. No, 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 no. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then a little a little tease here, uh uh Bill says, silly refractor guys, and and then in brackets, just teasing, he says. And um he says, uh, mirror mirror maker Mike Lockwood has a very good article on his website that goes through the damage to mirror coatings that prolong exposure to moisture causes. Um, also optic wave labs produced a very nice video on how simple the process of cleaning a mirror can be. Uh, it's perfect for removing the fear many have around doing this. I've even demonstrated it in the field at star parties with a couple of jugs of distilled water. Um, and then for my eyepieces, he says, I just rub them with the hem of my shirt. I think he's kidding. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah, so my apologies and, and really after bill, uh, sent this email, I got thinking like, yeah, you know what? Um, when I cleaned my mirror, most of the time I, I did just dump distilled water sort of on the mirror and let it run off. Um, so yeah, soaking, not a good idea. My apologies for mentioning it. And, and thanks to Bill for, like I said, uh, setting the record straight there for us.
0: Yeah, no, we we appreciate that. Bill, like I, I had a brief exchange with Bill and he was like, oh, I, I didn't mean to sound too harsh. And we're like, no, no, no.
1: It didn't let come us, that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, let us know if we if we uh, mess something up. And again, like uh, yeah, we are more refractor people that we've both owned and own reflectors. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, we certainly do appreciate, uh, you know, other people's experience, you know, whether it's just a, a different take on stuff or, uh, or yeah, if we, if we do mess stuff up, cause we are, we are amateurs after all, we're not claiming to be professionals in, in any of this. So I think it gives us the, uh, the latitude to, uh, maybe make the odd. I'd error in what we say. So I always feel fairly comfortable in that. I don't know about you, Shane.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe one of the, if you took nothing away at all from the optic cleaning episode, um, the one thing to, to take away is that there are a lot of different approaches to cleaning optics. If you are going to clean your optics, I would suggest doing some research. You know, um, I I think we mentioned on that episode, like I think Teleview's website, astrophysics, Bader, they yep. all give pretty specific instructions on how to clean different optics. Their optics. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yep. you know, read, read some of that stuff, be well, well researched before you go down the path of optic cleaning, just so you don't cause any damage.
0: Yeah. And it all depends because some mirrors that have the, uh, silicon oxide or SiO2 coating over top of it, I think are a little bit different than like if, if one doesn't have as much of a coating over top of the mirror, then that would be different still. Like I know, uh, uh Peter Picure, who I'm trying to get on the show, uh, next month. Um, maybe, maybe he'll talk about like his process a little bit. And like, I, I don't even know that he cleans his mirrors. He just resilvers them. So th- there's all kinds of different, different takes on this stuff. And, you know, just like you said, Shane, um, take a look at your manufacturer website. If you're just buying inexpensive um, optics, probably the advice we gave should be totally fine. But uh, yeah, I mean, your your mileage uh, may vary. And I think we gave a lot of warnings about, uh, you know, being overly uh, enthusiastic about cleaning as well. So yeah, I think it's generally good advice. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else to add, Shane? I think that's a pretty good place to uh, wrap things up today.
1: Yeah, uh, that is it for me, Chris.
0: Yeah, well, I'm really glad you were able to get out and uh, do some some observing. I'm going out today just to see uh, what conditions are like at, at my site, so that uh, hopefully I can can start getting out there, trying to get things uh, straightened around, so that I can uh, start doing uh, you know regular sessions. Again, I was I was I went over to a friend's house last night, but I was thinking, boy, you know, usually and we're driving over and sitting my my wife. I said, man, if if we had typically had this much melt on even a, a moderately heavy snow year. Um, the vast majority of the snow, all, but the largest snow banks would be gone. Um, but you know, we're, we're actually at the point now where we probably have about as much snow as, as we'd have on, uh, on a moderately heavy year, even at this point after about, um, 10 or 15 days of good melts, you know? So,
1: Yeah, we had a lot of snow. There's still some to disappear. Um, but I think with the recent conditions, like, I think if we go anywhere that, um, is a bit of high ground. It'll be it'll be fine. It'll be dry. So you know, yeah, that's just be a matter of finding those places.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm hoping because my hill is uh definitely a well-drained, um high ground piece of real estate <laughs> purposely selected for that with cactus growing on it. So so I'm really hoping and it and it didn't have much snow when I was last on top of it. So I'm pretty certain that the top will be clear. There might be a little bit of snow. Um, in the hollow but uh, yeah I'm gonna gonna go out here uh, in an hour or so and uh, and take a look and see I'm pretty excited just. Just to see what uh, what's happening out there. So, uh, without further ado, though, we'll end this one. Uh, thanks, Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, please be sure to subscribe in your podcasting software. And uh, then again, you know, we're always excited to uh, to get your observing emails. We do really appreciate it. Uh, I just love getting them and reading them during the week, especially uh, during these times when I'm not able to get out or we're not able to get out and do as much dark sky observing. And then as well, yeah, if you notice that maybe there's something that that we said that uh, that is incorrect. Um, We're we're happy if you engage us and and give us that correction. And then as well, if you just want to send us a a long um, observing report as well, that's, that's super cool Or, or to tell us about your journey in amateur astronomy. We always appreciate hearing that. So thanks again, everybody for listening.
1: Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast,